Chapter 16 of the French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The French Revolution by Robert Matheson Johnston. Chapter 16 The Directoire. With the Directoire, the Revolution enters its last phase and with that phase all readers of history connect certain well-marked external characteristics extravagance of dress of manners of living finality and immorality unblushing and unrestrained the period of the directoire is that during which the political men of the revolution with no principles left to guide them gradually rot away while the men of the sword become more and more their support and finally oust them from power the councils apart from the ex-members of the convention were found to be far less royalist than had been expected. The farming class, which had had great influence in the elections, had gained much from the revolution. The farmers had got rid of the feudal burdens, they had acquired land, they had profited from free transit. Anxious to retain what they had won, they elected men of moderate views rather than reactionaries. The voice of these new members could not, however, influence the choice of the directors, who were all taken from the ex-conventionals. They were Barris, Rubel, Carnot, Lavarier, and Letourneur. Of these, Letourneur and Carnot were ready to listen to the wishes of the electorate and to join hands with the new party of moderates in a constructive policy. The other three, however, took their stand firmly on the maintenance of the settlement affected by the convention and on deriving all the personal advantage they could from power. Rubel began to accumulate a vast fortune and Barris to squander and luxuriate. The officials appointed by the directors were as needy and rapacious as their chiefs. Everything could be had for money. England and the United States were offered treaties on the basis of first purchasing the goodwill of ministers for foreign affairs or directors. In the gilded halls of the Luxembourg, Barris, surrounded by a raffish court, dispensed the honors and the spoils of the new regime. Women in astounding and willfully indecent dresses gravitated about him and his entourage, women representing all the strata heaved upward by the revolution, with here and there a surviving aristocrat, like the widow of Bornhonet, needy and turning to the new son to relieve her distress. Among them, morality was at the lowest ebb. For the old sacrament of marriage had been virtually demolished by law, civil marriage and divorce had been introduced, and in the governing classes, so much affected in family life and fortune by the reign of terror, the step between civil marriage and what was no marriage at all soon appeared a distinction without much difference. There seemed only one practical rule for life, to find the means of subsistence and to have as good a time as possible. The external situation which the new government had to face required energetic measures. There had been great hopes after the victories of 1794 that the year 1795 would see the French armies pressing into the valley of the Danube and bringing the Austrian monarchy to terms. But the campaign of 1795 went to pieces. The generals were nearly as venal as the politicians, and Pichegru was successfully tampered with. He failed to support Jordan, he made false movements, and as a result the French armies at the close of the summer were no further than the Rhine. Preparations were made by the Directoire to retrieve this comparative failure. The campaign of 1796 was to see a strong offensive against the Austrians to the north and to the south of the Alps. Jordan and Moreau, the latter displacing Pichegru, were once more to attempt to penetrate toward Vienna by the valley of the Danube. 
At the same time, a smaller army was to invade Italy and, from the valley of the Po, perhaps lend a helping hand to the armies in Germany. Bonaparte was selected for this last command. Bonaparte owed his new appointment to a combination of reasons. He had for some time past, knowing the ground, placed plans for the invasion of Italy before the government. These plans gave promise of success, and Carnot was ready to give their author a chance of carrying them into execution. Alongside of this was the strong personal impression made by Bonaparte. His capacity was unmistakable. And last of all came the element of romance. He had fallen in love with the Mademoiselle de Beauharnais, protégée of Barras, and Barras worked for the appointment. Early in March, Napoleon Bonaparte and Josephine de Beauharnais were married. Before the end of the month, the young general had reached his headquarters at Nice. In the middle of April, news reached Paris of a series of brilliant engagements in which the army of Italy had defeated the Austrians and Sardinians. But immediately afterwards, the Directoire was faced by the unpleasant fact that their new general, disregarding his instructions, had concluded an armistice with Sardinia. Already in less than a month, Bonaparte, as he now called himself, had shown that he was a great general, and moreover a politician who might become a danger to the Directoire itself. From that moment, a veiled struggle began between the two, the Directoire attempting to reduce the power and influence of its general, Bonaparte constantly appealing from the Directoire to the public by rhetorical accounts of his victories and proceedings. While Bonaparte was invading Lombardy and attacking the great Austrian fortress of Mantua, the Directoire had to deal with conspiracy in Paris. Conspiracy was a striking feature of the period that followed the fall of Robespierre. In fact, for the ten years that follow, it may be said that all internal politics revolve about conspiracies. One of the most noteworthy was the one that came to the ahead in the spring of 1796 under the lead of Baboeuf. Baboeuf was a revolutionist of extreme views, but views rather social than political. His experience before the revolution had been that of a surveyor and land agent, and in this business he had apparently gone below the surface and had thought over that great nexus of social, political, and economic questions that center on that of the proprietorship of the soil. The revolution turned him into a collectivist, and with the directoire in power and a middle-class reaction in full swing, Babeuf began to be an influence. The revolution so far produced popular leaders, but not popular leaders who were of the people and whose policy was for the people. Mirabeau and Danton looked to the people, but only as opportunist statesmen. Hébert had imitated the people, but for the sake of his own advancement. Robespierre, more honestly, had attempted to be the prophet of the people, but with him democracy was only the sickly residue of Rousseau's contract social. And when it came to measures, to social legislation, he proved only a narrow bourgeois and a lawyer. And so it had been all the way through. The people, the great national battering ram that Danton had guided, retained a mass without expression. The people had never had leaders of their own, had never had a policy save for their demand for a vote and for the blood of their oppressors. And now here was a man of the people who had a popular policy, who put his finger on the question that lay even deeper than that of privilege, that of proprietorship. Babeuf's doctrine was collectivist. Nature has given every man an equal right to enjoy her benefits. It is the business of society to maintain this equality. Nature imposes the obligation of labor, but both labor and enjoyment must be in common. Monopolizing benefits of land or industry is a crime. There should be neither rich men nor poor, nor should there be individual proprietorship of land. The earth is no man's property. 
These doctrines were fervently accepted by a small group of devoted followers. They were widely acquiesced in by Jacobin malcontents, seeking a convenient arm against the government. Clubs were formed. The Cirque des Egaux, the Club des Pantheons, propaganda was carried out, conspiracy was involved. Wholesale efforts were made to gain over the police and some troops. Finally, the Directoire got wind of the proceedings and by prompt measures broke up the conspiracy and captured its leaders. Babeuf, arrested on the 10th of May, was sentenced to death a year later by a special court and executed. On the 19th of May, the Directoire endorsed Bonaparte's action by signing a favorable peace with Sardinia, then taking advantage of his further successes at Lonato and Castiglione, it half-bullied, half-bribed the feeble government of Spain into a treaty of alliance offensive and defensive, the Treaty of San Ildefonso, signed on the 19th of August. This placed a redoubtable naval force in line against England, with the immediate result that she withdrew her fleet from the Mediterranean, where it had been considerably impeding the operations of the French generals along the Italian seaboard. Before the close of the year, the Directoire pushed a step further, and Hoche made an attempt, frustrated by bad weather, to disembark in Ireland, which was ready to revolt against England. In February 1797, however, Admiral Gervais crushed the Spanish fleet off Cape St. Vincent, restoring by this stroke England's commanding position at sea. In Germany, matters had not gone well with the Republic. The young Archduke Charles, massing cleverly against Jordan, drove him back to the Rhine before Moreau could effect his junction. Moreau had nothing left but retreat. This success enabled the Austrian government to reinforce its troops in the Tyrol, whence its generals made repeated efforts to drive Bonaparte from the siege of Mantua. In September, he won a considerable victory over the Austrians at Bassano, in November at Arcola, in January at Rivoli. Finally, in February, Mantua surrendered. Bonaparte, in less than 12 months, had disposed of five Austrian armies and captured the stronghold of the Habsburgs in Italy. Preparations were now made for a new move. The Directoire withdrew Bernadotte with a strong division from Germany to strengthen Bonaparte and raised his army to 70,000 men. He advanced through Friuli and the Julian Alps, outflanking the Archduke Charles, who attempted to bar his way, with a detached corps under Jobert and Massena. Bonaparte was irresistible. He forced his way to within a short distance of Vienna, and finally at Leoben, on the 18th of April, Austria accepted peace preliminaries. She agreed to cede the Netherlands and Lombardy, in return for which she was to receive certain compensations. Bonaparte was now negotiator as well as general, for the Directoire was in great danger. It had come face to face with a situation in which it required all the support its general could give, and in return conceded to him a corresponding increase of powers. In March and April, the first election for the renewal of the councils was held, and out of 216 outgoing ex-conventionals who appealed to the electorate, 205 were defeated at the polls. A more unanimous pronouncement of public opinion was hardly possible. But the directors were not capable of accepting the verdict of the country. Power was theirs, and they resolved it should remain theirs. In the councils, an extreme party led by Boisset des Anglais, Pichegru, and Camille Jordan embarked on a policy of turning out the directors and repealing all the revolutionary legislation, especially that directed against the émigrés and the church. They formed the Club des Clichés. In the center of the house, opinions were more moderate, moderate progressive and moderate Jacobin. In the latter party, 
Saez, Talleyrand, Benjamin Constant, and as a social and literary influence, the daughter of Necker, Madame de Stel. The first step in the struggle was marked by the election of Bartolome, the negotiator of the Treaty of Basel, and a moderate to the Directoire instead of Le Tournier, who retired by rotation. Long debates followed on the emigres and the priest, and their course led to an attack by the councils, supported by Carnot and Bartholomew, on the ministry. Some changes were made, and it was at this moment that Talleyrand secured the post of Minister of Foreign Affairs. The 500 now became interested in some rather obscure negotiations that Bonaparte was conducting in Italy with a view to converting the peace preliminaries of Loben into a definite treaty. No sooner had he disposed of Austria than he had treacherously turned on Venice and seized the city. He was now juggling with this and the other French acquisitions in Italy in rather dubious fashion, and the orators of the opposition fastened on this as a text. It was just at this moment that Barras turned to his old protégé and asked for his help. Bonaparte's sword leapt from the scabbard instantly. He issued a proclamation to his army denouncing the factious opposition of the Clichéens, and he set Arigru, his grenadier general, to Barras's assistance. The result was the revolution of Fructidor. Late on the 3rd of September, Barras, Rubel, and Larivier announced the discovery of a great royalist conspiracy. Barthélemy was arrested. Carnot just succeeded in escaping. Next morning, Argerou, with 2,000 men, surrounded the assembly, arrested Pichegru and several leading members, and prevented the other members from meeting. Meanwhile, small groups of supporters of Barras from the two councils came together and proceeded to transact business. On the 5th, the 19th of Fructidor, decrees were passed by the usurping bodies. They provided for the deportation of Carnot, Bartolome, Pichegru, and others. They arbitrarily annulled a number of elections. They ordered all return emigres to leave France. They repealed a recent law in favor of liberty of worship, and they placed the press under strict government control. On the next day, two new directors were chosen from the successful faction, Merlin de Douai and François de Neufchâteau. The Fructidorians now controlled the situation, led by Tayen, Chenet, Jordan, in the councils. Many officials were removed and replaced by their adherents. Priests were severely repressed, thousands being imprisoned. Military tribunals were formed to deal with emigres, and in the course of the next two years sent nearly 200 to the firing party. Six weeks after Fructidor, on the 17th of October, the long struggle between France and Austria was concluded by the Treaty of Campo Formio, signed by Bonaparte and Cambenzel. Austria ceded the Netherlands to France. Her Lombard province was incorporated in the newly formed Cisalpine Republic, which she recognized. All the left bank of the Rhine from Bale was ceded to France. Austria took Venice, and a congress was to meet at Rastatt to consider territorial readjustments within the empire. After Fructidor and Campo Formio, matters proceeded more quietly for a while, the close of the year being marked by only two incidents that need recorded here, one the departure of Saez as ambassador to Berlin, the other the triumphant return of Bonaparte from Italy, and the ovations which the Parisian public gave him. But meanwhile, even with the councils packed, the directors were once more in difficulties, for the financial situation was getting worse and worse, and the venality, extravagance, and incapacity of the government seemed likely to result in a general bankruptcy. Already, 145 trillion of assignats had been issued. 
Gold was difficult to procure, a quotation for a louis in 1797 being 3,080 francs in paper. A new form of assignat had been tried, but without much success. The expenses of the war were enormous, an army of over one million men having doubled the annual expenses of the state. Had not Bonaparte systematically bled Italy of money and treasure, the Directoire could not have conducted business so long. As it was, it could go on no longer. The new taxes on property and income had not become effective, largely because collection was devolved in the communes. And so, a few days after the revolution of Fructidor, a partial bankruptcy was declared, interest payments were suspended on two-thirds of the debt. In the following spring, March to April 1798, the elections once more proved disastrous to the directors. They really had few supporters beyond those who held office under them, or who hoped for their turn to come to hold office. Over 400 deputies were to be chosen, and opinion was still so hostile that the only chance of the directors was an illegal action. They tampered with the elections, and finding this insufficient to accomplish their object, succeeded by another stroke of violence in getting a decree on the 4th of May, 2nd of Florial, excluding a number of the newly elected deputies. All this proved in vain. The temper of the councils was solidly hostile, and now the hostility came as much from the Jacobin as from any other part of the house. Partly from weakness, partly to create a diversion, the Directoire was now drifting into a new war. In February, owing to the French intrigues, a riot took place at Rome, which resulted in a republic being proclaimed and the Pope being driven from the city. Further north, the same process was repeated. French troops occupied Bern, and under their influence, a Helvetic Republic came into existence. Meanwhile, the war with England continued with increased vigor. A great stroke was aimed at England's colonial empire of the East, Bonaparte sailing from Toulon for Egypt on the 19th of May. On the 12th of June, he seized Malta. On the 21st of July, he routed the Mamelukes in the Battle of the Pyramids. And on the 1st of August, his fleet was destroyed at its anchorage near the mouth of the Nile by Admiral Nelson. The best army and the best general of the Directoire were cut off in Egypt. Meanwhile, Nelson, returning to Italy to refit his ships, decided the court of Naples to join in the war against France, and determined the march of Ferdinand and his army against Rome, which city he occupied on the 29th of November. Championet, commander of the French forces in southern Italy, brought one more flash of triumph to his country's arms. Though heavily outnumbered, he drove Ferdinand out of Rome, followed him to Naples, and took the city by storm after desperate street fighting at the end of December. At Naples, as elsewhere, France set up a vassal state, the Parthenopian Republic, that lived but few weeks and ended in tragedy. For early in the year 1799, Austria and Russia placed an army in the field in northern Italy, the war with Austria beginning in March. Its first events took place in Germany, where Jordan, for the fourth time attempting to force his way through the valley of the Danube, once more met with failure. The Archduke Charles fought him at Stockach, and there defeated him. This defeat gave the northern command to Messena and sent Jordan back to politics. When, some years later, the victor of Florus was again entrusted with the command of large armies, it was only to lead them to failure at Talavera and to disaster at Vittoria. Just as the war with Austria broke out again, the yearly elections for the councils were being held. The war brought about a recurrence of revolutionary fever, which resulted in great Jacobin successes at the polls. But the new deputies, like the old, were hostile to the discredited directoire. France wanted some stronger, abler, more honest, more dignified executive than she had. 
She would no longer tolerate that a gang of shady politicians should fatten in an office they did nothing to make effective. And as the war cloud grew blacker and the national finances more exhausted, the Jacobins themselves undertook to reform the Republic. The first step was to get a strong foothold in the enemy's camp. This was effected by electing Saez to fill the vacancy caused by the retirement of Rubel from the Directoire. Saez, who was known for his hostility to the existing system, whose reputation for solidity and political intrigue was wide, whose capacity as a constitutionalist and reformer was extraordinarily overrated. With Saez on the Directoire, there comes into existence an ill-defined vague conspiracy, all the more dangerous in that it was far more a general push of a great number of men towards a new set of conditions than a cut-and-dried plot involving precise action and precise results at a given moment. In this new set of conditions, Saez and those who thought with him recognized one fact as inevitable, the fact Robespierre had so early foreseen and so constantly dreaded. The influence of the army must be brought in, and the influence of the army meant the influence of one of the generals. And as Saez and his friends looked about for a general to suit their purpose, they found it difficult to pick their man. Bonaparte had long been cut off in Egypt by the English fleet, and news of his army only reached Paris after long delays and at long intervals. Jordan had almost lost his prestige by his continued ill success, and was in any case indisposed to act with Saez. In Italy, all the generals were doing badly. The Russian field marshal, Suvarov, with an Austro-Russian army, was sweeping everything before him. On the 27th of April, he defeated Moreau at Cassano, he then occupied Milan, and drove the French south into Genoa. At this moment, MacDonald, who had succeeded Championet at Naples, was marching northwards to join Moreau. Suvarov got between them, and after three days' hard fighting from the 17th to the 19th of June, inflicted a second severe defeat on the French at La Trebia. These reverses shattered the whole French domination of Italy, their armies were defeated, their vassal republics sank, that of Naples under horrible conditions of royalist reprisal and massacre. The Directoire suffered heavily in prestige by the events of a war which it had so lightly provoked and was so incompetent to conduct. In June, the councils made a further successful attack on the executive and succeeded in quick succession in forcing out three of the directors, Trailhard, La Reveille, and Merlin. For them were substituted Gauhier, who was colorless, Moulin, who was stupid, and Ducos, who was pliable. Of the Thermidorians, Barris alone remained, and Barris, after five years of uninterrupted power and luxury, was used up as a man of action. He was quite ready to come to reasonable terms with Saez, or, if matters should turn that way, with the Comte de Provence, whose agents were in touch with him. Saez, who owed his position in great part to the support of the Jacobins and the Council of Five Hundred, now found them an obstacle. The defeats of the armies were making them unruly. They had formed a club, meeting in the Menage, that threatened to develop all the characteristics of the old Jacobin club, and that caused widespread alarm. The agents ordered the closing of the Menage, but the Jacobins, led by Jordan, Bernadotte, Minister of War, and others, continued their meetings in new quarters. They began to clamor for a new committee of public safety. Saez now selected Jobert to retrieve the situation. This young general had been one of Bonaparte's most brilliant divisional commanders. He had a strong following in the army, was a staunch Republican, and was probably a general of the First Order. He was sent for, was told to assume command in Italy, and was given every battalion that could possibly be scraped together. 
With these, he was to win a battle decisive not only of the fate of Italy, but of that of the Republic and of the Directoire. Jalbert left Paris on the 16th of July. A month later, having concentrated all that was left of the Italian armies together with his reinforcements at Genoa, he marched north. At Novi, halfway to the Po, Suvarov barred his advance. A great battle was fought, the French were heavily defeated, and Jalbert was killed. One week later, just as the disastrous news of Novi was reaching Paris, General Bonaparte, with a few officers of his staff, embarked at Alexandria and, risking the English men of war, set sail for France. Bonaparte now becomes the central figure on the historical sage, and the events that follow belong to his history more than to that of the Revolution. Here, all that remains to be done is to indicate the nature of the change that now took place, his connection with the schemes of Saez for ridding France of the Directoire, and placing something more effective in its stead. While Bonaparte was sailing the Mediterranean, seven long weeks from Alexandria to Frejou, the disgust and weariness of France increased. Jordan and Bernadotte, in a blundering way, attempted to wrest power from the directors, but proved unequal in prestige and ability to the task. A more powerful and more subtle political craftsman was needed. Then, in the gloom of the public despondence, three sudden flashes electrified the air, flash on flash. Massena, with the last army of the Republic turning sharply right and left, beat the Austrians, destroyed Suvarov in the mountains of Switzerland about Zurich. Before the excitement had subsided, came a despatch from the depths of the Mediterranean, penned with oceanic exaggeration by the greatest of political romanticists, in which was announced the destruction of a turbaned army of Turks at Aboukir by the irresistible demi-brigades of the old army of Italy. And then suddenly people ran out into the streets to be told that the man himself was in France. Bonaparte had landed at Fréjoux. Rarely has a country turned to an individual as France turned to Bonaparte at that moment. And he, playing with cool mastery and well-contained judgment on the political instrument fate had placed in his hands, announced himself as the man of peace, of reform, of strong civil government, of republican virtue. It was one long ovation from Fréjoux to Paris. At Paris, Bonaparte judged, and judged rightly, that the pair, as he crudely put it, was right. All parties came to him, and Saez came to him. The author of that epic-making pamphlet, Qu'est-ce c'est que la terre's état? And the greatest soldier produced by the revolution put their heads together to bring the revolution to an end. Saez and Bonaparte effected their purpose on the 9th and 10th of November, the 18th and 19th of Brumaire. The method they adopted was merely a slight development of that used by Barras and Argerot at the revolution of Fructidor two years earlier. Some of the directors were put under constraint, others supported the conspiracy. But the Council of 500 resisted strenuously, and it was only after scenes of great violence that it succumbed. It was only at the tap of the army drums and at the flash of serried bayonets that the last assembly of the revolution abandoned its post. The man of the sword, so long foreseen and dreaded by Robespierre, had come into his own, and the Republic had made way for the consulate. End of chapter 16